Hebrews 11, and we're going to look at verse 17 to 22 this morning as we come to God's word. And I know as usual, you're going to find it helpful to have your own copy of scripture open and to be reading along there with me. Before we do, let's go to God again in prayer and let's ask for his blessing on the preaching of his word this morning. Pray with me, would you? Father, we come again another week, another Lord's Day, another day to celebrate the resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ. Another day to praise you for the greatness of your grace and the greatness of your mercy that you are slow to chide and swift to bless. We pray, our Father, that you would bless us this morning with the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ, that you would minister to us, that your word would come with great power and conviction, that you would tune our hearts and minds upward, that you would set our minds on things above where Christ is. We pray that you would speak, Lord Jesus, for your servants here, and we ask these things in your name. Amen. Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac, shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave direction Concerning his bones, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, one of my favorite figures in church history is a lesser known minister from uh, the mid 19th century in France, a guy named uh, Adolphe Monat. And Adolphe Monat was uh, diagnosed with terminal cancer in September of 1855. He was one of the few really solidly reformed ministers in France at that time. And knowing that he was going to die, Adolphe Monat um, invited a number of his closest friends and congregants into his bedside, and he preached uh, 20 or so sermons over six months until he died from his deathbed, laying on his deathbed. They had a worship service in his home, and Adolphe Monat uh, preached those sermons. His children transcribed the sermons and then ran them by him, so we know what we have is very accurate from um, the transcription of those sermons. They've been published in a book called Living in the Hope of Glory, Living in the Hope of Glory. And one of the things that I'm struck with as I read the sermons that Adolphe Monat gave from his deathbed is the eager anticipation of hope that he had as he faced his imminent death. He knew that he was going to die. He knew he wasn't going to get better. He knew that everything in that sense was against him, and yet he knew that Christ was for him, and he was looking expectantly for the hope of the resurrection. And what's more fascinating is that when you read the biography of Adolphe Monat, he was actually a man that struggled with great assurance, whether he, what the old Puritans used to call, had an interest in Christ, whether he actually was uh, born of God's spirit, whether he really was sincere. He, he had a very tender conscience, and much of his ministry, he struggled. He actually thought about leaving the pastorate because he had struggled so much with internal conflict and assurance issues, lacking the deep experiential assurance that he belonged to Christ. And yet, in these 25 or so last sermons, 
All of that is absent. And what you see in Adolf Monat as he faces his death is this large expectation of glory. I want to read to you just part of one of his sermons in that, that volume. He says, Life is a blessing, death is a blessing. Death is a blessing because it delivers us from the miseries of this life, and especially because even though life put us in possession of all the joys that earth can offer, death opens to us an enjoyment of a glory of which we can form no idea. Now, speaking as a believer, he's facing death, and I think what that says more than anything is that a believer's faith is nowhere shown more fully and clearly than when he is staring death in the face. A believer's faith, living by faith, is never seen as clearly and as fully as when a man or a woman is staring their own death in the face. Adolf Monat was staring his death in the face. And I think that that's interesting because here in Hebrews 11, verses 17 through 22, you have a very clear focus on death and the believer living by faith and facing death by faith. Now, you might look at this and it'd be easy to say, well, all that is is a history of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. All he's doing is giving us some, just some disconnected examples over 28 years. He, he actually does verse 17 to verse 22. He is, I'm sorry, 28 chapters in the book of Genesis. He's running through the last 28 chapters of Genesis and he's picking out these different cameos but if you look at this and, and you just tried to put together, why does he bring Abraham back up? And then why does he mention Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph? Why does he mention them? I think the common theme that you would see is the imminency of death being presented to these men. These men who had been given the large promises of God, the promises of the gospel, the promises of redemption, the promises of entering into a city that has foundation, whose builder and maker is God. They have been given those promises. And at this point, the writer of Hebrews is fixating on the imminency of their death. Now, let me say this. I think that's because the Hebrews were being tempted to go away from Jesus Christ, turn away from Christ, because they didn't want to die under the imminency of the persecution they faced. They had a very present danger in front of them. They were being greatly persecuted. They were afraid that they might die. And so being afraid for their lives, they thought, well, if we just go back to Judaism, we can still maintain some kind of Judeo-Christian principle and, and we can go back to the sacrificial system and then we can escape death. And what the writer of Hebrews is doing is saying the life of faith is a life that is manifested most fully at the point of your death. The life of faith is manifested in a believer most fully at the point of your death. Now, you may look at this and you may say, wait a minute, but Abraham wasn't facing death. He was facing the death of Isaac. And I think that we'll see this morning that that too has everything to do with Abraham's life of faith and his perspective looking forward himself. And so let's notice first the trial of the life of faith as it faces death. And you'll see there in verse 17 that we're told by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Now, we've already seen these different examples in Abraham's life. We saw that he was called away from his family, that God called him out of Ur of the Chaldees, away from his family, that by faith he departed, that by faith he and Sarah received strength to conceive and have the son of promise. We saw that last week. We saw these different cameos. And what the writer of Hebrews is doing now is saying, let's talk about the big example of faith. How do we know that Abraham had faith? What does it look like 
What does it look like for a person to have faith? And more than anybody in the scriptures except the Lord Jesus, Abraham, at that moment when God called him to offer up his only son, Isaac, his beloved son, Isaac, is set forth as the example of one who indeed acted and lived in saving faith and endured in saving faith. This is many, many years after Abraham exercised that first act of faith. Abraham had believed. He had come out of Ur. He, he trusted God through all his wanderings. He lived in tents as, as a pilgrim and a stranger with his family. He, he didn't want any of the land. In a very real sense, he was looking past all of the temporal. He wasn't looking for comfort and ease. He wasn't looking for ease and pleasure and comfort here. That's huge. But we don't really see how fully magnificent the example of Abraham's faith is until we see God calling him so many years later, now that Isaac is a young man, so many years later, asking him to offer the son that he had waited so long for, the son that God had promised to him, who he supernaturally gave to Sarah and Abraham. And notice that the writer tells us, as he does with all the other examples in this chapter, it was by faith. It was by faith. We might actually get tired of that repetition, and we might want to just rush to the story itself. We might want to rush to the account, but, but the writer doesn't rush to the account. He says, by faith. And so Abraham still had the promises of God in sight. He was still trusting the word of God. God had spoken to Abraham. Abraham was putting himself under God's word, and he was, he was living by faith in that word, a God that he couldn't see. A God who told him, I want you to go here and here and here and here and do this and this, and I'm going to give you a son, and all the nations are going to be blessed in him, and the Redeemer is going to come from him, and the whole world is going to be blessed in him, and now take him and offer him to me on the altar. And notice the writer tells us that this trial of faith is overcome, and Abraham is victorious by faith. I want to talk to you this morning a little bit about trials, because... That's one of the principal things in this chapter is the trials, the hardships. No, I think an earthly person would say, well, I don't want a God that's going to give me lots of hardship. Well, then you won't have the true and living God. If you don't want a God who will give you hardship to test you and try you, to see whether faith is in your heart, to purify the corruption that remains in you, to make you depend on him more fully and trust him more fully and love him more fully, then you will not have the true and living God. Because the true and living God tests every one of his servants, every one of his people undergo testing. Abraham underwent severe testing more than anyone. None of you will be asked by God to offer your child. None of you. That was a very... One-time, redemptive historical command of God, specifically geared to Abraham, after Abraham had already endured lots of temptations. Uh, Thomas Manton, one of the old Puritans, uh, made the point, I think he's right, that God's trials in the lives of his, his best saints, if I can say it that way carefully, the trials that God brings into the lives of his best saints are suited to the measure of their faith. Abraham had already overcome great trials. He had already been tried to leave his family. He left his family. He had already been tried as he went through foreign lands and, 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 and his wife being threatened to be taken from him by kings. He had gone through all these trials, and now God reserved, as it were, the biggest trial. And Manton makes the point, and I think he's right, that, that some of the greatest saints in church history underwent the greatest trial as they faced their own martyrdom at the end of their life as elderly saints. 
And yet God sustained Abraham and God sustains every one of his saints as he brings them through trials. And so we see first that that the, the, as Abraham looks at death in the face, he is looking at the greatest trial. I think that's sort of a theme in this whole section here where death is the great trial of trials. Death is the great trial of trials. You know, even though Adolf Monas said life is a blessing, death is a blessing, the reality is for the unbeliever, death is not a blessing. And by nature, death is not a blessing. Death is unnatural. No matter what Steve Jobs or anybody else wants to say about it being the best human invention, it is part of the judgment and curse of God on Adam for sin. By nature, men fear death. By, ma- by nature, death, the Bible says, is the last great enemy. It's worse than all the armies of the world being against you. Your death if you're not in Christ, means judgment. For the believer, though, and I think what we see here, even in Abraham acting in faith, and this is what's so huge, that Abraham was willing to offer Isaac on the altar because Abraham knew that there was a resurrection. Abraham could endure the trials because Abraham was looking forward to the bodily resurrection. And so the trial that came in, Abraham had enough Revelation from God is ammunition to walk into that trial and to obey God and to, by faith in God, being led by God and trusting in God, looking forward to the resurrection. What Abraham showed was that he endured that trial because his hope was not here. Um, William Still, I, I love this imagery. He said, Abraham didn't expect everything down here. Abraham didn't expect everything down here. His faith penetrated through the dark portal of death to the glory that was to come. His faith penetrated through the dark portal of death to the glory that was to come. In the trial of Abraham, what we see is that a man of faith with a magnificent example of faith is looking through the darkness and the curse of death and because of the promise of the Redeemer and because of the promises of God and because God has said, I am going to bless the nations in your seed. He could endure that trial, a a horrific trial, trial that none of us could imagine. A trial so great that our current president said we would call uh, health and child services if somebody said God told us to do that today. That's how unbelievable he thinks it was, yet very believable. Abraham entered into entered into that trial and he did it because he had the promises of God and he was hoping in the resurrection so he could stare at the death of his beloved son and he could he could stare it in the face face to face and he could say I will do this and notice here's what we're told about his overcoming this trial by faith that he put himself in activity in order to overcome it. Now, this is huge because the only way we're ever going to overcome the trials in our life, which are not going to be this great, but certainly the trial of our death, the only way we're ever going to overcome the trials of life is if we do what Abraham did here. If we exercise our minds and all of our um, inner faith life towards God in taking what God has said and and the difficulties and the trials and yet knowing what God has commanded us in there and walking into that trial knowing that God is able and he can bring us through and if he wants to, he will bring us through and that obeying God by faith is more important than escaping any of the dangers that we're faced with. And notice, notice what the writer says. He says that he offered up his only son of whom it was said through Isaac shall your offspring be named. 
So he knew Isaac's the one the whole world's going to be blessed in. And notice what he says. He considered that God was able. That's the first thing that every person of faith will do. They have to consider that God is able. That's a great word study. If you ever want to go online, get an online Bible and type in um, he is able or just the word able and look through the New Testament and see how many times the apostles are saying he is able, he is able, he is able. He has all power. He is all might. He is the infinite God. Nothing is hard for him. Nothing. He doesn't expend any energy in anything. And Abraham knew that he was able even to raise Isaac from the dead. And so Abraham had the promises. In Isaac, your seed will be called. He had now the command of God, offer your only son on the altar. And what he did instead of saying, this is crazy, like so many people do, he didn't walk away. He didn't walk away when things got hard. He said, I'll obey God by faith. I'll go through this by faith because I know that God is able to raise Isaac from the dead. Um, J. Gretchen Machen, in his little book, What is Faith, has some very profound statements about um, why so many people actually walk away from Christ. And, And it's when hardship hits. I want to read to you what he says. He says, when loved ones are taken away, When disappointment comes and failure, when noble ambitions are set at naught, then we turn away from God. We have tried religion, we say. We have tried prayer. It has failed. Of course it has failed. God is not content to be an instrument in our hand or a servant at our beck and call. He is not content to minister to the worldly needs of those who care not a bit for him. You see, what what Machen's saying is that God was more important to Abraham than Isaac. The living God was more important to Abraham than Isaac. I want to ask you this morning, as you examine your lives, as we examine our lives, and we ask, what do I value? What do I treasure? What can I not bear the thought of losing? We then have to ask, is the God who has redeemed me and who has promised to give me himself for all of glory, to be with him in glory forever, is he he more important and more valuable to me than all those other things I value? So that when and if they are taken away... I will trust him, and I will praise him, and like Job, I will fall down, and I will worship God. That's how Job could do that. How could the man who lost all of his possessions, all of his children, all of his servants, how could that man fall on his face and worship God because he, like Abraham, valued God more than everything down here? And so Abraham goes through this trial. He comes through the trial. It becomes the great example of faith to all of us. And notice that uh, we're told there in verse 19 that figuratively he received Isaac back from the dead. Now, what are we to take away from that is that when the trial is passed, when we pass the trials that God puts in our lives by faith, there is rich reward on the other side, even if that rich reward is resurrection on the last day, that at the end of the day, it's worth it. That's what the writer's saying, that at the end of the day, it's worth it. It's worth obeying God in the trials. It's worth going through the difficulties. It's worth staying close to Jesus Christ and clinging to him by faith and holding tightly to the one who gave himself for us. No, I I can't help but think that we are supposed to read this looking beyond Isaac to the one who did die and who did rise for us. That Isaac, the son of Abraham, In a sense, he died 
and he was raised again. And Jesus, the son of Abraham, gave himself for us. He laid himself on the altar of the cross for you. He, he gave his life for you. He poured out his soul unto death for you. He carried the wood, as it were. Isaac carried the wood. Jesus carried his cross to be crucified. He is the greater Isaac. He laid down his life. And, and that, and don't miss this, that is what makes the reward possible. Abraham received Isaac back figuratively because the greater Isaac would come, would die, would die, would rise, and would raise us up in him and would secure for us everlasting glory. And so I think very clearly that this is pointing us beyond the one. So when the writer says figuratively speaking, as a symbol, symbolizing something greater, that Abraham was looking forward. You know, Jesus himself says in John 8, um, Abraham saw my day and he rejoiced to see it and was glad. And so let me just say this as we close on this point about the trial. The way you make it through the trials is by keeping your eyes fixed on Jesus, not on Abraham. Keeping your eyes fixed on Abraham won't get you through the trial. Keeping your eyes fixed on Jesus will get you through the trial. That's the point of this. Hebrews 12, he goes on and he says, he says, let us run with endurance the race set before us, looking unto Jesus, fixing our eyes on Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross despised the shame, and is sat down at the right hand of God. And so there's a greater Abraham, isn't there? There's a greater Abraham in Jesus Christ who endured a greater conflict, who didn't have, a, didn't have anyone with him, but himself went and obeyed his father and said, yes, my father, I will lay down my life for my people. The son of God in eternity said, yes, my father, I will obey you and I will lay down my life to redeem a people unto myself. And so it's by looking unto him that Abraham endured. It's by faith in him that we endure trials. And then notice, secondly, when it comes to our own death, notice what the writers say now as they, they move on in verses 20, 21, and 22 to look at Abraham's descendants. As we focus on not uh, the death of Abraham's son, but our own deaths, what the life of faith looks like. How could Adolf Monah, who had struggled... <coughs> through his whole life to gain assurance, had wrestled deeply in his soul with whether he really belonged to God, how on his deathbed, knowing that his death was very shortly going to come, how could he face that the way he did? How could he look death in the face and have a, a serenity and a peace and a calm about him and a hope and a longing for what death was going to bring? Well, I think the same way that we see with with uh, Isaac, Jacob, and, and Joseph. Notice here in verse 20, we're told by faith Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave direction concerning his bones. Now, follow me on this. God spared Isaac, and as a result of sparing Isaac... He gave Jacob and Joseph. He gave the other children. And that was all a partial fulfillment waiting for the Redeemer to come. All of that's about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Isaac was spared. Jacob was born. Joseph was born. And all of it is moving in redemptive history to the Redeemer coming. And yet none of them saw the promise fulfilled. God spared Isaac. Abraham, I mean, who knows how many times he recounted that story to his son. 
who knows how many times Isaac recounted that to his son and to his grandsons, and yet none of them received the promise. None of them received the inheritance of the land. None of them received any of the temporal blessings that God promised, and none of them saw the Redeemer come in their own day, and yet they lived, and here's the really important part, they lived the entirety of their life by faith in God's promise. The entirety of their life. How do we know that? The writer of Hebrews picks out the last recorded events in each of their lives as these men are now old the son the grandson the great-grandson of Abraham as these men are growing old as they are coming up to the foot of the Jordan as it were they're coming up to the foot of the Jordan the writer of Hebrews tells us that each one of them do exactly the same thing to their sons and their grandsons they pronounce a covenant blessing on them what's that about I mean if I knew I was going to die in six months and I called my boys to myself and I pr- pronounced some covenant blessing on them, that, that really would not have any meaning at all. Let me just be as frank as I can with you this morning. But it has a world of meaning if you are the patriarchs who have been promised these promises and that these promises are, are descendant on a seed coming, an offspring being born, and that every male child being born, there's a hope, is this the one, is this the one, is this the one, is this the one, when is God going to fulfill his promise? And so at the end of their lives, when Isaac blesses Jacob, Jacob blesses Joseph, and Joseph tells the children of Israel, his brethren, to bring his bones up out of Egypt, all of them are looking expectantly to God fulfilling his promises, even though they don't see it on their deathbed. They have not seen it. They have not tangibly realized it. There is no empirical data. There is no scientific investigation they can do. There is no rationale they can use. But by faith, they stare their own death in the face and they bless their children and they say, God is going to fulfill his promises. God is going to bring a redeemer. God is faithful. They live their lives all the way to the death and in their death, their faith shone almost more brightly than it did through their life. Let me give you one example. Jacob. Very interesting, by the way, if you compare Jacob and Joseph. Um, Jacob, at the end of his life, um, in a sense, like his father being um, functionally losing Isaac, Jacob thinks he's lost Joseph, sort of a typical death and resurrection with Joseph. And Jacob, at the end of his life, says to Pharaoh, few and evil have been the days of my life. I mean, that's pretty much like saying, I've had a pretty crummy life. It's been pretty awful. I've not had a good life. (laughs) That's what Jacob's saying. In contrast, Joseph is in the great pits of suffering, in prison, falsely accused, being treated horribly by his brothers, being treated horribly in Egypt, and yet everywhere, the Bible says, the Lord was with him, the Lord was with him. And what we're to get from that is that Joseph knew the Lord was with him, but on their deathbeds, All of them knew. On their deathbed, all of them showed that they knew God had something bigger and better to come in the plan of redemption. Interesting that there's sort of a parallel between uh, uh, Isaac and Jacob blessing their sons on their deathbed and what Jesus does as he's facing the cross. They give the covenant blessing. They say, the Lord's going to bless you. He's going to multiply you. Great offspring's going to come to you. Basically, God's going to bring about his covenant plan of of redemption. 
And on his deathbed, as it were, Jesus is going to the cross, and in the upper room, he says to the disciples, my peace I give you, not as the world gives. Jonathan Edwards has a great sermon on that text, and he says he didn't have houses, he didn't have an inheritance, he didn't have, a land, he didn't have land to give, but he had peace. And he gives the redemptive peace that passes all understanding to his people because of his own death. He pronounces a covenant blessing on his people. And when he's raised from the dead and Jesus is about to ascend into heaven, Luke tells us he lifted up his hands and he blessed his disciples. It's the covenant blessing. The one who fulfilled the covenant promises, who is the covenant keeper, lifted up his pierced hands and he blessed his disciples. And in that, they were to be assured that there would be a day when they would be with him body and soul. He said to them on his way, on his way to his own death, he said, I go to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again that where I am there you may be also. That's the point of the patriarchs. That's the point of the text. They knew that there was a place they were going to be with the God who had promised, looking in faith to the redemption he would bring. And here's the most remarkable one of all, I think, in this text, and I'll close with this, uh, Joseph. Joseph, it says, by faith, gave instruction to the children of Israel to take his bones up out of Egypt into the promised land. What's the point of that? I mean, he's not gonna, those bones are not going to enjoy the promised land. But he says, take my bones up 400 years from now, Promise me you'll carry me to the promised land. He was so sure. Here's the point. He was so certain that his own death didn't stop him from exercising faith in a sense. Now listen very carefully. Even beyond his death. In saying, carry my bones up. Because Joseph knew that one day, and, and it's remarkable, his bones are somewhere in the land of Israel today. I mean, his bones got carried into the promised land, and one day he's going to be raised up bodily. That's the point. He's going to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now, what does all this mean for you and me? Um, I think there's tons of obvious applications you could make personally. Um, you all know your lives. You know, maybe your trials are in your marriage. Maybe your trials are with your children. Maybe your trials are in work. Maybe your trials are with health issues. I mean, there could be 100,000 different trials that you're facing. In every case, God has commanded you to trust in his son, Jesus Christ, to walk through those trials, to obey him in the midst of the trials, not to give in to disobedience in order to escape the trials, which is what too many people do too quickly. And that how we do that is by looking past those trials to the day of resurrection. And let me just say this. The governing principle in your thought every day should be one day there is going to be a resurrection from the dead and I want to attain to that and I will attain to that by continuing to trust Jesus Christ no matter how hard life gets. He's not going to make any special promises to you audibly. He's made all the promises he calls you to believe in the scriptures. And when we do what Abraham did, we take the promises, we take the difficulty, and the challenge, and the trial, and we say, I don't know why this is in my life. I don't know how in the world I'm going to face this and get through this. But I know that beyond this is resurrection. So I know that I can trust God and walk into this, and that I can walk through this trial. 
Now, I think we've all failed many, many, many times when we've been faced with trials. And what we do is we go back to Christ and we confess our sins and we confess the weakness of our faith, just like the patriarchs had moments of weakness. And we cry out to him for pardon and mercy and power. And we pray that he restores us. And he prays that he gives us the same mindset and the same faith that Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph had. And that's what we're called to. That's how you're going to persevere to the end. That's how you'll persevere to the end. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church this morning. Let's pray. Father, we are weak. We have failed many times. We have wavered in unbelief. At times, we have wanted to avoid persecution and difficulty and trials. We have disobeyed you and sought to take the easy way of sin and and, um, at times complacency, the fear of man. We pray, O God, that you would give us minds and hearts that are longing for our own resurrection and believing the promise that even as our Lord Jesus has been risen, you will raise us up with him and that death will now be our entrance into glory. We pray that everyone in this room would know what it is to live by faith so that they might know what it is to die by faith. We pray, our God, that you would take the word that's been preached and that you would bless it to our souls and make it work in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.